0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Obviously, with the time of year and every uh, winter slowly, although, man, it seems to be hanging around. But don't complain because there, there ain't no snow. That's the good thing. We've still got cool temperatures hovering around the zero mark uh, and more snow they're saying on the way but not not looking like it's going to last at this point but the uh, my point is in all of this is that spring is here and of course remember where we were uh this time last year when it came to the great waterfalls and uh, conservation areas in our area and how they have become a huge tourist attraction uh rope rescues, even people losing their lives, trying to get to a better position to view the falls. Obviously, this is an ongoing problem that Hamilton is going to have to deal with. Uh, in the meantime, though, uh, enforcement of bylaws and, and just trying to get people to play by the rules is uh, what we are trying to do moving forward into the summer of 2018. Let's bring in Ken Leenders, Director of Licensing and Bylaw Services for the city of Hamilton, and he is with us now. Ken, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Not a problem, Scott. So I guess as the warmer weather approaches, um, more of this becomes a concern, or were people, are people hiking up there all the time?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, we didn't see a lot in the winter. I mean, you still have uh, some people venturing through the trails and, and taking a look at it. But I, I think once, uh, once the spring has come, um, I think we're seeing more and more people coming. And I know we've been out in the last two weekends and, uh, and we are seeing the, the crowds uh, returning to Albion Falls.
0: So what is different this year, Ken? What, uh, how are we approaching this differently?
1: Well, I went to, uh, or our, our team went to council and said, you know, um, we, we used a lot of resources last year. We used a lot of officers. Uh, we had uh, a zero tolerance as directed by council. And, and, you know, unfortunately, we had to give out 167 tickets. Um, but we wanted to see if there's a different approach. And so this year, uh, council's approved us uh, the hiring students, which will be university students, uh, college students that uh, will become our ambassadors. And, and the idea is we encourage people to, to come to Albion Falls. We encourage them to visit all of our falls, but we want them to be safe. And so uh, part of their job will be to educate, to, to, to warn people, uh, but they will have the ability to uh, to enforce if need be. But the focus will be more so on education and awareness and hoping that we get compliance. And that's what our ultimate goal is. We want people to come to our, our city. They want people to see the great natural beauties that we have here. But we don't want to be involved with these rope rescues or people being injured uh, on city property. So, are these actual
0: bylaw officers, though? Ken, I mean, do they have all the the credentials of a bylaw officer?
1: They they do. Though they're going to be focused on one specific area, the mm-hmm. the parks bylaw, which was uh, you know is one of our bylaws that we enforce, and and so their whole focus will be one specific. Area now we use students uh, quite a bit uh, through m- licensing bylaw services uh, mostly for for education and awareness uh, during the summertime, making sure people are cutting the grass, picking up garbage you know just trying to keep the uh, the health of the of the city in check. Uh, we thought this would be a great use for for students because um, we're going to give them some training in tourism so that they can you know uh, educate people that could, that come to our city because we're finding the majority of people that are coming to our falls are not from hamilton mm. uh... most of the hamiltonians get the message stay out of the, the bowl of the falls, stay out of the water don't climb the rocks you know do this safe but unfortunately we are getting these people coming in and and they all want that perfect shot that perfect selfie and they're getting into trouble and basically they're breaking the the bylaw uh, by doing that and so we're hoping that education and awareness will become first in hand but you know we've already noticed this year that we've already had to give out three tickets this year. These are people who just ignore ignore us that think you know I don't care what if you, what you're saying or what you do i'm going to do whatever i want and unfortunately uh, they're going to end up having a hundred and fifty dollar fine to 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 remember the rules by that it is a hundred and fifty dollar fine is it? That's right. It's a it's $150 fine. Uh, I mean, we just got council to approve us moving to a a minister penalty system, which is a little bit. It's more like a parking ticket system. So you won't have to go through the courts, and uh, and we're hoping that uh, that gets approved on council on Wednesday, and then that'll be a new way of of enforcing this. Uh, it takes people out of the court system and just makes it a little more easier. But I mean, our ultimate goal is not to give out any tickets. Our ultimate goal is that people are compliant. Uh, they, they ask for directions. We tell them how to stay on the trails. They do everything correctly so that they're not get, getting in harm's way. Unfortunately, there's always the ones that want to ignore the law. They think they know better. And these are, what we're trying to do is prevent the rope rescues and, and try to save people's lives.
0: So the students that are, or have been hired for, for these jobs, Ken, are they uh, are they in related industries, whether it's police security, whether it's tourism, that sort of thing?
1: Uh, they are. We have uh, people that uh, that come to us. Usually, the students have either a, a police foundations or a criminology background, uh, but we are finding uh, other people that are very much involved with environment or they're envi- uh, involved with social studies that uh, that are coming. and And it's interesting that the the individuals they're getting is not just the people that want to be police officers or law enforcement. But we're getting university level students that uh, that really understand the impact uh, that you know the work has on on citizens of Hamilton. So it, it's great. We're getting some some really interesting, diverse uh, members that are coming to our team. That's really helping us do a better job.
0: What do people say when they're ticketed Ken do they get the message are they surprised uh, like you said some people just ignore it no matter what i guess there's always going to be those but are they surprised when they get a ticket
1: I think they are i, I mean uh, a lot of them um, plead ignorance but uh, you know i've i've seen the the charges go through the courts and you know majority of them are either being convicted or they're they're paying their their fines and so you know as i said last year 167 people were ticketed uh, it's not our goal. It's not. Uh, it's not about generating revenue through tickets. It's about education. And and sometimes, you know, when they ignore an officer, uh, we tell them to get out of there, and they do nothing. You know, we'll catch up to them eventually, and and we'll give them a ticket. So it's it's an opportunity for them to. Uh, it's it, 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 it's more of a. An opportunity for them to learn from the enforcement, and, and we're hoping that they just listen. And I think that's why it's so important for for us to, and uh, and yourself to have your program to educate people to create the awareness so people understand. We welcome you to the area. We welcome you to the falls. Stay on the trails. And anything at the bottom of the falls, is prohibited. You're not allowed to be down there. And uh, um, you know, you could say, "Well, I, I didn't see any signs." Unfortunately, you don't need to have it signed. Uh, the, the the bylaw itself makes it very specific. You're not supposed to be in the water. You're not supposed to be climbing the the shelves. And we're just trying to do this to protect people.
0: Um, uh, would the obviously these people are trained as bylaw officers. That and, and I'm guessing that's their title. Is that correct, Ken? So they are still a bylaw officer.
1: They will be a bylaw officer. Yes. But and, and would have, have? Sorry, go ahead. Well, they'll have all the authority and and powers to to act as a bylaw officer, including issuing fines if need be. Uh, But all our our teams. But you said about a knowledge of
0: the area, too, to help guide people through this. Is is, is that a part of this as well?
1: Part of the team is uh, we now have a coordinator for for our students that uh, is developing the training. So not only do we teach them about the law, but we're going to have uh, our teams go through tourism so that they they can direct people. you know, where to go, we're going to get the parks, uh, people involved so that they can talk about the the different parks that are around so that they are going to be truly the ambassadors for our parks. And that's certainly what uh, we've told council we want to do. We want to hire ambassadors, but they still need to have that enforcement capability so that we can keep people safe.
0: Uh, obviously, you've uh, seen this. Can you you've you've seen the results? Of what happens, and, and how we got to where we are today? Do you think this is controllable? What is the answer?
1: Well, the, the, I mean, the city has done so much. Uh, they have fenced uh, this area. They have put proper signs up there. And I think council just had enough. They said, y- you know what, we've done everything possible. What we need now is, is strict enforcement. And, and we're hoping that, you know, uh, another year of of. Getting in front of people, educating people that that maybe we can get the message out. Uh, we want people to come to our city. We want them to enjoy the the trails, but we want them to do it safely. And you know, when you, we're having 15, 20 rope rescues, uh, and it's impacting our emergency services, and and people are are, are getting injured, something had to be done. And so uh, we're hoping that this addition of uh, these these students becoming our ambassadors. But they'll also be supplemented by our officers. So if we're finding that uh, that we are struggling and we're not getting compliance. I'm very well able to, to divert other officers to focus on this, and, and then we'll just become very heavy-handed and and lay out a lot of tickets until the message gets out there. We're looking for compliance, and that's our ultimate goal. Uh,
0: how many were hired to do this over the summer?
1: So we have four. They're starting in the end of April. And so until uh, until they're fully up and running and trained, uh, we are supplementing the, the enforcement with uh, current officers. So we have officers working every weekend now, starting two weeks ago. And, uh, and, and they're doing the same thing as we did last year, as directed by council, is, is talking to people, educating people. And then when people refuse to listen to us, unfortunately, they, uh, we, we use our enforcement action.
0: We must have one of the best rope rescue teams in Ontario by now.
1: Oh, I know our our fire department. I mean, not. I don't mean. I don't mean to be
0: glib (laughs) about this, but man, they're down there all the time.
1: Yes. Well, even even last year when we had enforcement uh, down there, there was uh, still three incidents that uh, that happened. Uh, I mean, obviously uh, some were were based on uh, medical needs, but I know. Even two of my team were there when we had the mass uh, flash flood. I don't if you remember that, when we had uh, a sudden downpour, it became a flash flood, mm. and people got swept down the creek. And uh, it was two of my team members that actually pulled the person out of the creek and, and rescued them and their dog.
0: Uh, are you surprised by the numbers? Uh, City saying more than 49,000 people visited the falls between July and October of last year. That's amazing.
1: What is amazing, and that's only Albion Falls. Yeah, that's just the one, yeah. That's just the one, and I know we've had complaints at Shadok Falls Falls as well. Uh, Some of the neighbors are complaining that people are showing up in their backyard. So this team will be somewhat flexible. Although they'll be focused on Albion Falls, we will be able to deploy them in other areas if we're finding some problems. Now, of course, we're only going to be enforcing falls that are actually owned and operated by the city of Hamilton. Um, yes. and, uh, but, I mean, the ultimate goal is, is uh, safety and, and education, and we're hoping that we think this has the right flavor to, of course, support the city's goals of, of being you know, open to tourism and getting people to come to our community, but do it safely.
0: Uh, Is this message getting out? I mean, obviously, there's been lots of publicity about the falls, especially on social media. Is the message getting out that there's bylaw officers there that are enforcing the law and there are rules to play by? Is that part getting out?
1: I think the message is getting out. I mean, if you just see the decline in rope rescues i mean that's that 's a benefit right off the bat um, you know because every every rope rescue is costing the city anywhere between three and five thousand dollars for for de- deployment and of course the the worst part is is that emergency teams are not available for other emergencies, but I think the message is getting out, but it, I think it needs to be a constant for the next couple of years um, because, as I said, the majority of the people that are coming to the area are from out of town. And so uh, we need to, to do more work on educating, welcoming people to our city, telling them where, where the great restaurants are, tell them what other areas that they can visit, but also instructing them to stay on the trails, uh, abide by the rules, and, and don't put themselves in harm's way.
0: Great idea. Ken Leenders is with us, Director of Licensing and Bylaw Services, City of Hamilton, talking about bylaw patrols uh, using summer students uh, to make sure that people are complying with the rules and uh, don't get themselves in danger at Albion Falls and others. Ken, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have a, a June provincial election uh, Andrea Horvath and Premier Kathleen Wynne and PC leader Doug Ford all going at it. Now Doug Ford's campaign has decided to scrap a media bus. This is the bus filled with uh, media people that basically follows them around from day to day to day, covering the campaign and giving you all kinds of little tidbits of what is going on when they're out on the road and doing their uh, trips from uh, place to place to place. Some experts say this is so they they can keep Ford out of the hot seat and not... Uh, you know, just running off at the cuff and, and saying whatever he says and then captured and on the 6 o'clock news for everybody to see. Uh, others have said that this is the way it's going with technology. Either way, I don't know. It uh, kind of sends up a red flag for me. Let's bring in Tim Abrey, a doctoral candidate, Department of Political Studies, Queen's University, and with us now, Tim, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this.
2: Oh, no problem at all, Scott.
0: So what were your thoughts when you first heard of this, that there is not going to be any Doug Ford magic bus?
2: (laughs) Which list would you like? Uh, (laughs) Well, my former journalist part of my head kicked in and said uh, that's not going to be a lot of fun for the journalists trying to cover him because they're going to end up chasing him all over the province trying to get the same kind of coverage that they would have gotten previously uh, a little more easily. Uh, but the, the academic part of my head that worries about uh, the way we're approaching democracy these days uh, kicked in and I got a little concerned that this is just another example of the kind of thing that politicians are trying to do to control their image, control the message and limit access of journalists. Uh, so that they don 't get the kind of questions that they they hate quite as often
0: uh how often does this happen? Obviously, this is a tradition here in Ontario. I understand it 's not necessarily the case across the country
2: no it's true it's uh, It is a fairly solid tradition among uh what we eggheads like to call Westminster democracies because we're we're electing local members, but the leaders' tours matter because they they travel from riding to riding, trying to boost the image of local politicians that are running in places where they think they've got a shot of winning. So this business of following the leader around uh, is a way of keep keeping track of where the campaign thinks the important things are. Um, and so, yeah, it's a strong tradition in Ontario. This wouldn't be, as you pointed out, the first time that somebody has uh, has dropped the bus. It's, it's not as strong out west uh, we're seeing more instances of it in other countries, but most of it has to do with either a lack of interest, because journalists pay a fair chunk of change to ride on that bus, uh, or just simply that they're trying to control the message a little more tightly, and they just don't want to be around a crowd of journalists asking questions all the time.
0: So, what will the media do in this case? How do you how do you report?
2: Well, they're going to do what you guys do all the time. You're all crushed for for time as it is now. Fewer resources to cover the same. Uh, big world. Uh, they're gonna the ones who are serious about it are gonna end up chasing them around on their own dime. Uh, they're gonna be trying to follow the campaign where they can. They're gonna pick their spots. Uh, you'll probably have a few people who try and uh, stick with the tour the entire way, but it's gonna become a, a lot more of a, a hodgepodge effort. And you're going to have a lot of people doing the the dial-of-journalism approach, where they're calling from wherever they happen to be and try and pick up the story from from the newsroom instead of on-site.
0: So who does or who would normally pay for this? this? How is it paid for?
2: The media outlets pay for their spots on the bus. So it was ma- more a matter of efficiency and, uh, ensuring coverage and, uh, ensuring that there's strong contact between the, the leadership candidate or not the leadership candidate, but the, uh, the leader of the party, um, and the press pool. It's really, it was originally conceived as a, just a convenience for everybody. It keeps everybody together. It's a little cheaper and it ensures coverage of the campaign. It's not quite so hard these days, obviously, to get coverage of your campaign. You can do things like Ford is going to do, which is self-promote, that he can create his own channels and drive out uh, event coverage through social media channels. Uh, Politicians these days just aren't as dependent on the big megaphone of of the general media to get their message out.
0: Is that really what the issue is here, or do you think they're side-skirting something?
2: Well, I think it's both. I think it's I think it's because he can do it, it's mm. a lot more enticing for a candidate like Ford. Because, you know, if you've got a candidate who's more comfortable with the mainstream media and, and frankly, needs the mainstream media to get their message across, uh, they're going to be all over having them follow them around because they're going to have that dialogue. They're sure. going to have the give and take that makes them look better. Um, you know, if you've got a candidate that's good on their feet, it's, it doesn't hurt them to have conversations with uh, with media members who are up to speed. But for someone like, like Doug Ford, there's no question in my mind, uh, the Conservatives particularly in this country have been leaning more and more and more over the years towards putting out their own uh, their own coverage channels and trying to avoid the mainstream media. And there's no question, I mean, he's, he's making a meal out of the idea that the mainstream media is out to get him and not on the side of the average guy. Uh, and so this plays into that whole storyline. That, uh, that, you know, he's just going to avoid them because they're not helpful. What about,
0: um, you, you know, I've, I've met Doug Ford, and I, I must admit I had a different opinion of him before I met him. Uh, many have said that one of his biggest assets is his ability to go out and meet people and, and and be the common guy. So why would they not want that? Why would
2: they not want coverage of that? Well, because he's got a bit, bit of a mixed record on that uh that he yes he's pretty good at doing what is traditionally called main streeting that's the thing yeah. standing out there on the corner hanging out at a tim horton's going to a hockey game he's good at that stuff because he connects with people on a really day-to-day level the problem is not with those people the problem is with people who ask him difficult questions that mm-hmm. he thinks are either too challenging or not important uh, he has a track record of blowing up at people in public, mm. and he's thrown around a few names at female reporters in particular, and uh, I'm guessing that they're thinking that's probably not to their advantage, that he's, he's going to be better at mainstreaming, and if they capture it with their own cameras and push it out through social media, stick it on YouTube, do Facebook Live uh, moments, it's going to be a lot better.
0: So this certainly isn't a cost issue if it's the media outlets that are picking up the cost of this anyway.
2: No, no, it is absolutely 100% not a cost. So
0: why doesn't the media just rent their own bus and follow them?
2: Well, you never know. That may well happen. But, you know, as a former reporter, how good are you guys at coordinating yourselves that way? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's going to be a... As
0: long as somebody gets us all on the bus, we're fine. (laughs) Yeah,
2: so you never know. Uh, It depends, I guess, uh, how strong the the press gallery uh, head is at any given time. But, yeah, I mean... That I think you will see that kind of thing, but the problem in then is, it's the major networks who are going to do that kind of effort. Yeah, because they got afford it. Yeah, one hundred percent. So then, you know, what are you guys doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's that is a problem. I think that it what it does do is it reinforces the importance of you know networks. News networks make a big difference in this regard because then you know you've got sister stations and other in other towns around the province, and you'll share coverage around but it just makes it a lot looser. Uh, and it makes it much harder to just stay on top of the themes of the campaign as they develop. I mean, if you think back to campaigns that have happened over the years, a lot of the time the things that really make a big splash are not the planned events. Yeah, You know, they're, they're the things that happen along the way.
0: Well, the Tories are a great example of that.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I I, I, and do you,
0: how do you think that plays a factor in this decision at all, Tim, that, you know, considering it looked like they were on the road home uh, twice before and shot themselves in the foot?
2: Yeah, I I don't have any doubt. Uh, And quite frankly, these things tend to be quite personality-driven. It'll have a lot to do with the candidate, but it'll have a lot to do with the people who are working for the candidate and their own levels of comfort with different ways of doing things. And there's just, there's no question. I mean, if you look back 10 years, uh, the folks working around Stephen Harper started with their own developing of social media channels and trying to, trying to, to massage events so that they were a little bit less, uh, chaotic, uh, closed audiences, canned questions, that sort of thing. I mean, there's stage managing of these events has been slowly developing over the years. It's not new, but what is new about this is the confidence level that people have with shutting out uh, what is a really important part of the democratic process. People forget that, that running for office is not a job. This person is not going to be the head of a corporation. This person is in something we call a public office, which comes with a completely different set of expectations. Public office means public. It means that you're, you've invested, if you get elected, you've got a chunk of power that lets you make decisions over the lives of your fellow citizens. Uh, and there's an expectation in democratic systems that that means that you need to be answerable for the decisions that you do make because it's going to affect the lives of the people living around you. And I think that from people like me, this is the main thing that I'm concerned about in what I study. Uh, that's the main concern is that it's, it's another narrowing of this conversation between people who hold public office uh, and the people who give them that power. Uh, if they just start turning the entire campaign into a canned uh, commercial, it's going to be awfully tough Uh, to get good, solid, balanced information on both sides of of issues and to challenge uh, candidates with questions that they may not necessarily like to answer.
0: Uh, Do Ontarians care? (laughs)
2: Uh, Which ones? I'm an Ontarian. Um, yeah, I think some do. I think that the the underlying question you're getting at is, you know, are people bored with this stuff or have they had enough of it? Mm. Uh, well, well you, know, you know, I mean, I can look yeah. at it,
0: you know, I can look at it two ways here. Uh, you know, we've got a prime minister that's very plugged into social media, the sure. selfie uh, prime minister. And now the, the problem they're running into is the stage presence is wearing thin. Sure, absolutely. So, so again, you know, how, how long do you let the leader control the message before you've got to rein them back in?
2: Well, it's always a delicate balance, right? I mean, it is it is never just the leader leading these things. Uh, and in fact, they are so preoccupied with the multitude of issues they've got in front of them. I did spend some time as a political staffer 100,000 years ago. And they're so preoccupied with the number of files on their desk, it's it's often up to staff to make those sorts of decisions. And like anything else, they kind of know it's over when it's over. They know that they've crossed the line when they start to get the kind of feedback that Prime Minister Trudeau got on his India escapade uh but there's no question that that social media presence and that that approach is part of what makes him popular with particularly with a generation under 30 so it's and that's that's an an area that's ripe for vote picking so i mean strategy is always important in this stuff and you Sorry, yeah. no. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll let you finish. No, I was going to say. I mean, you always need to look at it with the two lenses, right? I mean, they pick strategies for a reason mm. because they're going to play to their strengths. So, Doug Ford streeting and taking pictures of himself Streeting is really not all that different from the kind of strategy that uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau is doing with, you know, approaching groups of young people and taking selfies with them. He's playing to his own audience. But that's not what democracy is about, and it's not what holding public office is about. You need to have serious conversations about the decisions that are being made, the laws that are being passed, the policies that are being considered, and that's going to get tougher when there aren't journalists around to ask those questions.
0: Do you think this is about targeting a younger demographic or uh, just controlling the message?
2: Um, I don't think it's about a younger demographic necessarily. I think this is interestingly the kind of thing that cuts across Demographics. They're going to be different people who find this appealing for different reasons. But I, I don't think we need to look any further than what's happened south of the border over the last couple of years. Uh, there's a strong current of that kind of frustration in our own politics. And I think that this kind of uh, being Intemperate, to put it mildly.
0: But like Doug Ford's not, Doug Ford's not out there tweeting every, you know, every waking no, moment like, no, no, uh, no. like Donald Trump is.
2: No, 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 no. There's tactic. The tactics are different, but the core message is very similar, which is that. Elites, I mean, you hear him talking about uh, the control of elites. Uh, Generally, the mainstream media gets lumped into that category. He is definitely picking on this idea that uh, the country and the province, in this case, has been run too long by a particular group of people, and he's going to capitalize on that sentiment to to try and cash in votes. But again, I think that the the question is, is anyone going to ask him that sort of thing on the campaign trail? Well, if there's no bus full of journalists following him around, it's less likely.
0: Does this draw, uh, Tim, does this draw more attention to this issue by doing this as opposed to just letting them ride on the dang bus? Uh,
2: Yeah, it's a a double-edged sword, right? But you can be guaranteed that they focus group this stuff uh, and did some overnight polling on it. So I think that what they're counting on is that at the moment, not enough people are paying attention to it for it to matter and I'm sure an awful lot of people weren't even aware that a bus follows candidates around Mm. Uh, so it kind of makes sense at this stage of the campaign. It'll kind of get lost in the shuffle unless people keep on it through the campaign and point out how difficult it is to cover him if in fact it turns out to be difficult to cover him. Um, But I think that people are going to care more about the stuff that's coming out of his mouth. Uh, This is very clearly a concerted strategy to control the bandwidth of this message uh, to make sure that he's being seen in environments that are good for him uh, and to make sure that he's saying the things that are going to energize and mobilize people who have share frustrations with him. And I think that that's, that's really what they're focused
0: on. Will this make the media more critical of him?
2: Guaranteed, I think so Like, you Uh, know,
0: I I remember hearing a long time ago Don't piss off the media I mean, you're just asking for trouble there
2: Yeah, I know, but you know That that wisdom comes from the era that I started out in journalism And that's, you know, 30 years ago And I think that the problem with that is That the reason people used to say that sort of thing Is because that was your only way To get through to people en masse And Mm -hmm. that just isn't true anymore So I think that the challenge for journalists And people in the media trying to cover this stuff is to, to get better, and, I, and I, you know, I'm sorry, the, the, the challenge is that you know, your average journalist is heavily overworked these days with the number of stories they got to cover in a day. And so the challenge, though, is that, that there needs to be a little more understanding about what the role really is for journalists mm-hmm. in a democratic system, and I'm not sure that that level of understanding is terribly high, that people are consuming political news uh, as a combination of information and entertainment, yeah. and the more the entertainment quotient goes up, Uh, the less likely it is that people are going to understand that there's a serious, serious, serious democratic institution problem at the bottom of this. That the less you have serious conversations about policy and the less a politician who is going to wield significant power is held to account, uh, the more likely it is you're going to get results that are not good for the system or for the people who have to live in it.
0: Do you think uh, the PC party will change its position on this as the campaign Mm. continues?
2: No, not a chance. No, I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, I'd love to be proved wrong about that, but I think that it's uh, too much of a considered strategy. There are going to be an awful lot of people who support the idea. You're going to get people who are going to get traction out of the idea that it's a waste of time and resources. Uh, there are going to be people who support the idea publicly. I mean, it would not be unheard of to hear, you know, journalists going out there and supporting the idea that they should be following them around on on their own energy anyway. So, I don't know. I think it's just too... Let me ask you you that question, Tim. Is this too
0: much of a staged play? Because you're all on the bus, it's all about getting buddy-buddy with a leader, because, again, when you meet them face-to-face, it's completely different when they're just staring at you on your TV screen. It's... Is, yep. is, is, is is that is that solving the, the problem? Is that the real answer here?
2: No, I would
0: You know, bringing all the reporters so. on a bus and plying them with whatever you want to ply them with, you know, not yeah, insinuating but... that they're all out there drinking and having a great time. But <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean?
2: Well, you wouldn't be wrong historically, but I think that... that part
0: of... <laughs> the good old days.
2: Yeah, exactly. But I think the problem with that kind of approach to this is that it misses that one of the reasons that most politicians don't enjoy being followed around by that group yeah. because they understand that these people know the ins and outs of all the things they're saying that those people on the bus get tired of the the canned bromides yeah, uh, and they start asking questions about things that are a little bit more significant and that are bound to take them off message a bit. So no, I think it's, this is absolutely, I mean, it's not a coincidence that you see more and more parties starting to take this kind of approach, shutting down access points for mainstream media in an era when they have pretty close to unlimited access to the public through their own channels. it's That's not a coincidence.
0: So you are it's, concerned that others will copy and, and pretty soon this will be the norm?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. I think wh- maybe not the norm, but it'll become a, uh, a legitimized strategy. Like yeah. this is, this, And I think that's already true. I think that's why they quite happily went ahead and announced that they were doing this, is because they know that it will play well with a certain group of people. I mean, that storyline you just followed I guarantee you, you know, about the buddy-buddy, it's Mm. not real anyway, is absolutely going to be repeated by people over and over again who just don't want to see him criticized. But the thing that I would emphasize for people is that that is what democratic politics is about, that you need to have people getting into arguments over things in order to know even what you think about it. So even though you might think that you completely agree with everything that Doug Ford is saying, until you hear him in an argument with someone who disagrees with him, you can't be really certain that you even know what he's talking about. So I think that stuff is really, really important, and that kind of tension in the system is critical to it functioning properly. Otherwise, it just becomes a big PR campaign, and they just become another kind of celebrity, and we really don't need that.
0: Tim Abrey has been with us, Department of Political Studies, Queens University. Doug Ford's campaign has decided to scrap the Magic Media Bus. Tim, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
2: No problem at all.
0: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This is going to be a real treat. Uh, We're going to get all kinds of inside stories here. Phil Pritchard is going to join us, VP and Curator, Keeper of the Cup, from the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he is with us now. Phil, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this.
3: No problem, Scott. How's
0: everything? It's doing very well. Thanks for asking. So tell us what the process is. What happens here? How how do we get a changing of the guard of the names on the Cup?
3: Well, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the Cup is 125 years old now. And way back in uh, 1893, when it was first won, I don't think Lord Stanley ever, en- ever envisioned it would be 36 inches high and 35 pounds. It started off as a little ball. <laughs> and obviously it grew over the years, just like we all do, unfortunately, unfortunately, I guess. Uh, but in, in 1992, it was the 100th anniversary, and the cup had actually ran out of room. There was no room to put any more team names, any more players. And there was lots of thought. What, what do we do? The trustees, the Hall of Fame, the NHL all got together and tried to figure things out. There was lots of conversation about making a new cup, retiring the old one, and starting again. Uh, there was talk about adding rings to it to make it even bigger. And someone brought up the conversation that Brian Troce had said once to the media. He said, the Stanley Cup is the perfect height to hold over your head. <laughs> And we thought about it and thought three feet high, like that's perfect. So how do we make this? How do we make all these changes? So what happens is the cup evolves, but it stays the same look and the same hourglass style to it. So every 13 years now, we remove the top ring of the barrel. So the five rings at the bottom, we remove that top one. We uh, we tire it into the Hockey Hall of Fame, so everyone can still see it. It's in Lord Stanley's vault. The whole history of the cup is there. And then we slide the others up and add a new ring to the bottom. So that has happened twice before. Uh, It's about to happen one more time now in uh, probably late May, early June before the cup is won this year. But I think Scott, as you mentioned off the top, it's so close to us now because for a lot of listeners, and me myself included, the names that are coming off now are do you want to see our boyhood heroes, the Gordie Howes, exactly. the Bobby Hulls, yep. Dan Matitas, Ted Lindsay's, big names in hockey? And I guess 13 years from now, when the next group comes off, it will be the Bobby Clark's, the Phil Esposito's. So mm-hmm. it will be a different generation, and and so on and so forth. So it it is important to hockey to preserve that history, and we're doing that at the Hall. But at the same time, we've got to we've got to keep the cup. Uh, as it is, and having all these names engraved on it, and that's that's how the tradition has started
0: uh, all those years ago when the ring started removing. So, when the other rings were removed, w- was there any sort of fuss? Did anybody care? Does there seem to be more interested in, more interest in this ring than the past? Yeah, and you know what? It was. It was. And I don't know if that's social media Scott. I'm not sure what the answer is. But back
3: in '92, when we removed the first one, we had a big kind of big celebration, if you will, at the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and and then when we did it again in, in 2005, we invited some old players back. We had a big press conference in that, but this time in the world of technology and Twitter and Instagram and everything, uh, it is becoming, I don't want to say it's blowing up, but it is becoming so popular, and, and maybe because guys like Gordy Howe and them are coming off some... Yeah that argue are the greatest players that ever played, the golden era of hockey in that. And it's so special to everyone's heart and to think back when they used to listen to it on the radio or on the original six teams and that. Mm. For a lot of people, that's, that's the captivating time for them to become a hockey
0: fan. So what what is your role as keeper of the cup? <laughs> well, I
3: can start right off the top with saying, I'd rather win it than be a keeper of the cup. That I don't.
0: I don't know. I'm bet. Yeah, I'm betting you're, you're throwing some pretty cool parties, and all of a sudden there's a surprise guest there. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I get to go to some pretty cool parties, and I bring along a guest. And I, I think the best thing about it, God, is it doesn't talk to me when we travel. So I, I get to win every conversation. It's the only time in my life I win every conversation. So what is and this? I, I guess sc- is traveling with a cup. I mean it. It is a unique piece of. Canadian heritage and becoming worldwide heritage now because everybody wants to. Uh, everyone that puts on skates or picks up a hockey stick wants to play in the National Hockey League and ultimately win the Stanley Cup to to be able to bring it to all these different events. It is special and it has all that that aura and the tradition about it. That makes it what it is, and and to having a ring removed and seeing the new names go on it, it's it's pretty special.
0: Uh, here's an interesting note from a listener, and he, speaking of folklore, uh, is it true uh, he heard that the original real Stanley Cup never leaves the museum anymore because it's been lost, found, and at the bottom of a pool, whatever, so many times that this is a copy? Can you clarify that?
3: Well, it's, it's actually the original Stanley Cup bowl right. that Lord Stanley donated doesn't leave anymore. So that little 7 at seven-inch bowl that's at the top of what we know as the Stanley Cup doesn't leave anymore. So that was first made by a silversmith in Sheffield, England, in the 1850s. Lord Stanley bought it in the 1890s, brought it to Canada. And it's funny because his two sons and daughter all played hockey in the Ottawa area, convinced good old dad to donate a trophy. And I guess when your dad's the governor general of Canada... You can bring a pretty cool trophy, so hmm. if you brought this little bowl that has become the envy of every sport trophy in the world, I think, but it's one that is so revered by everyone that plays hockey it's it's that special.
0: What is the schedule for the cup? We've only got about a minute or so left how 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 much time does it spend in the hall? How much time is it out on the road?
3: Well, yeah, you know what's great and and uh, I guess we start off by saying hockey's played in eighty countries around the world now, so one of the biggest pieces of hockey history or one of the biggest promotional tours, if you want to call it that, is the Stanley Cup. So it's at a lot of charity events. It's promoting sports, not only hockey. Uh, It's at a lot of NHL events. And during the summer, it's on the road a lot. So probably, I'm going to say 85% of the time, it's on the road. But I, I think the magical part of it, Scott, is when you see it out there, you see the real Stanley Cup, and it, it's so special. Uh, it's it's very unique
0: in its, its look and, and what it has, and boy, if it could talk, it would be a best. <laughs> I can imagine. Phil Pritchard is with us, VP and curator, keeper of the Cup Hockey Hall of Fame. Phil, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, it's
3: good to talk to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM
0: 900 CHML.